Well, as a kid on the playground, I admit I really enjoyed chasing the girls. Okay. But I recall that one of them claimed I had cooties. And uh, this idea seemed to zing around the playground like a video gone viral on TikTok. Okay. All boys have cooties. Therefore, Jeff has cooties. And the kicker was this. Since Jeff has cooties, we can't play with Jeff. Or you might catch them. Because anyone with this imaginary germ is disgusting and to be rejected. Now, if you read Luke carefully... There's a category of people, and that comes out in our text this morning, mentioned in multiple stories. Mentioned by John the Baptist in Luke 3. Mentioned in Luke 19, named Zacchaeus. Mentioned in the parable of the Pharisees and the tax collector in Luke 18. And here in our text, they're tax collectors or toll collectors. Put simply, Levi the tax collector, who becomes Matthew the disciples, had cooties. Lots of them. And this is how good Jewish people who felt oppressed by the tax system would have seen it. In fact, they conflated and put together two terms, sinner and tax collector, as synonyms. Because you see, in addition to the tax burden, the people felt that one of the worst sins in the world was betrayal. And the tax collectors were collaborators with the Romans, demanding that the people buckle under the oppressive financial system. Jesus, by the time we're in Luke 5, whereas we're walking through the Gospel of Luke, and slowly, albeit, is immensely popular at this moment. But what is going to begin to happen is that Scripture begins to tell us a long run of rather offensive things that Jesus does. So you see... First, because Levi is offensive and Jesus seems not to care. And second, because Jesus is having a party with Levi and his friends, these outcasts and these sinners, people of a similar status as Levi, poor people, marginal people, fringe people, people with cooties, and this is offensive. Let's get to the point. We still play the cootie game. We feel aversion and revulsion towards some people. Don't we? Or am I the only one? We call them creepy, icky, Vulgar, 
obnoxious, gross, nasty. And while we don't say they have cooties, our avoidance and our social exclusion, our distancing, and even contempt are still there. You see, some don't have cooties and they're in, but some do, and they're out. And we love to categorize the world this way. But let's remember Jesus' vision. Remember Luke chapter 4 and the vision of Jubilee? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news for who? The poor. And to set the captives free, that is those imprisoned, to release people who are feeling oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So put into my language, there's a place for the left out. And there's a vision in Luke 4, now this was a few weeks ago, our message, so I'm repeating our lesson from just a few weeks ago, but I want you to see how it works its way out in the gospel of Luke. A vision of removing chains from hearts and minds and spirits and bodies. There is this new way of seeing and being together, and there's this confident hope in the future that Jesus begins to bring about as he goes about ministering. You see, against the normal expectation, he goes after the poor, he goes after the enslaved and the needy and the oppressed, and this includes reaching out to a traitor. Levi, the tax collector, and then having a party with all of this guy's buddies. Now, as you read through the Gospel of Luke, I might suggest that here's the storyline. There's a number of ways we could tell it, but here's one way of telling it. What starts with a vision A jubilee vision, in other words, Jesus inaugurating his mission, this is what I'm about, And this is so challenging to us, church, and I hope we're paying attention here because we have such preconceived notions of who Jesus is and what the gospel is that we miss what the Bible says. So I'm challenging us to think about what the Bible says, not what tradition has told us, Not what we might have learned in the Church of Christ or some other denomination. Not what we might have absorbed along the way, but to look again at the Word of God. And please, if I'm off base, you tell me. Because it is enormously challenging when the real Jesus shows up. So he has this jubilee vision for society, for the world. And now we're seeing it lived out with this tax collector whom everybody hated, who had cooties. And he attends this party. So what starts with the jubilee vision 
ends with a heavenly banquet. And there's lots of eating and drinking with every sort of person along the way. And as you walk through the Gospel of Luke, you'll see the entire spectrum of society, it seems to me, eating and drinking together. We just get our first glimpse here. And the Jubilee vision turns more and more into a heavenly banquet. Some of you have known that, and I've talked about this a few times through the years, but let me just give you the data, the data for those of you who are evidence-based. In Luke's gospel, there are 10 major scenes where Jesus is having a meal. That ought to tell us something, either as a host or as a guest. There are 15 allusions to heaven being a great party. And there are 60 mentions of food or eating or fasting. You see, Jesus' vision starts heaven now. Let me say it another way. There are three phrases that are recorded in the Gospels that say, the Son of Man came. Could you help me out with what those are? The Son of Man came, in Mark chapter 10, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came in the Gospel of Luke 19 to seek and to save that which was lost. One more, Luke 7, 34, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, this is a bit of a rather studious reflection on this masterpiece of a gospel. But I want you to imagine just being one of Jesus' followers for a moment and imagine that you've decided to follow Him based on what you've seen so far. Your head would be spinning trying to figure out your teacher. Because the Pharisees approach you and are complaining, and here's what they say in verse 30. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complain to you, one of his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, to understand how intense these good people, these Pharisees, we're feeling about this, good religious people. Richard Beck tells the story, 
and he could do it much more graphic, or could do it, and I don't know if he does in his class or not, uh, in his book, Stranger God, but he talks about the idea of spitting into a cup. Would you mind? It's a bit disgusting. I'm going to spit in there. Spitting into it. How did that, what do you think when I spit into the cup? Any reaction, guys? What's that? S. Groves. That was cooties. Yeah, thanks. That was, that was, it's, there's a lot of ways you could describe it, discuss. This is how the Pharisees felt about this other group of people, tax collectors and sinners. It was that emotional reaction you have, and Richard Beck takes it a step further, and he said, okay, that's one step to spit into the cup, but what about if I drink the spit now? I got some reaction out of people. Now, what is it? It was my spit. Now, just because I'm drinking my own spit and you're reacting? It really makes no sense on a rational level. It's an emotional revulsion. And I want to suggest to you that there are people that, are, that create that kind of reaction in us. Some of them might be in a row next to you. They might be right here in this church. And so you do your best to walk around them, to avoid them, because of these feelings. If you really wanted to take it to another level, I could hand it to you and have you drink what's in the cup. But you get the idea. Enough of that. I want to identify two areas where we're feeling this sense of sort of sick feeling or disgust. And Richard Beck, as it relates to this, calls it, you have your circle of affection. And then there are those who are outside your circle. The Pharisees put the tax collector outside of their circle of affection. The Pharisees put other tax collectors and sinners outside the circle, and they drew their boundary lines. Now, what does your circle of affection look like? And we're going to come back, and I'm going to challenge you to look at your boundaries in just a minute. But what is your circle of affection? It is who is in. And it relates to who is in and who is out of your circle. And we all draw our circle differently. In fact, those who are within our circle are in almost regardless of what they do. This is what is so fascinating. Consider your family for just an instant. Maybe you got kids or grandkids, the kids are crying. They're throwing up. The kids poop their pants. They yell and throw tantrums. They pierce their body. They get a little older, they do drugs. They come out as gay. 
We may not like their behavior, but we accept them. Because they're in our circle. As bad as they might be, and I say bad, we do not first judge them as being bad or good for that matter, but as part of the family. They're kin. They're part of the circle. And even if we feel disgust with their behavior, we receive them. But if you're out of the circle, look out. And the disciples, by following Jesus, find themselves in a circle that is drawn differently than they'd ever experienced. And they must reconsider their own emotional boundaries. Here's the thing. If you and I are going to do more than to pretend to follow Jesus, then we need to expand our boundaries with him. There are two obstacles. The first one I would call is disgust. That is, how are we going to reach out to those you find disgusting? To share food and drink is to welcome and accept And this is the boundary-breaking nature of the kingdom of God and what Luke's gospel is trying to tell us about a major theme in Jesus' ministry. You need to allow the Spirit of God, the mission of the Jubilee, to overcome your distaste or your disgust. The second response, driving the good people, in this case the Pharisees, is contempt. Contempt comes from a place of superiority and makes the other person inferior. It is often an attack on the worthiness of a person Like saying, you're not significant. Contempt says, I'm better than you. And you are lesser than me. We see it every day, every day, every time you pick up your phone as it relates to politics, social media, race relations, in our schools, and John Gottman's research says that it is the number one one predictor of divorce. I would suggest that may be true, but it is a much wider societal problem. And it is a church problem. Whether in words or behaviors, contempt highlights this distance between people. What I'm saying from our text is that Jesus, there goes Ansley with her baby. (laughs) I only knew that from Facebook from yesterday, so I don't know if y'all missed that, but she's taking care of a little one. 
Oh, said enough of that sermon, all right? Jesus will have none of it. What is remarkable is that he takes the opposite approach, and his humility is profound here. His superiority as the Son of God gave every reason for contempt. But he identifies himself as the Son of Man and calls Levi and Levi lookalikes a refusal to practice contempt. I'm going to give you some three illustrations here and we'll be finished. The way forward out of contempt is to be a follower of Jesus, is to address your contempt with a pool of appreciation. I thought we had a slide on that, but said another way. I know we're all made in God's image. We've been infected. We've been fallen. But Jesus, of course, has done something about this for each one of us. Of course, eating by eating and drinking with the unthinkables, but then, but then serving and dying for them and then inviting them to be united together by being united to him. He breaks down these barriers. Now, if we're called to face our disgust and our contempt, I want it to start with my own heart because this is a difficult message. So I got to thinking about my own life, and it isn't easy, and I, I have to admit I struggle with this. As I grow older, I often find myself more merciful than I used to be. That's good. In other words, I feel a great deal of sympathy with those who are different and those who see themselves differently. I have more capacity in some ways, to use the phrase I used a few weeks ago, of you do you. However, I would also say I am less gracious. More merciful, but less gracious. And the reason for this is it takes energy, and it takes time, and it takes intentionality, and it takes a commitment to be grace-filled for those who are not like me. I sometimes don't have the enthusiasm to be with those who are different or to reach out in that way, to socialize and to make deep connection beyond my circle. A few years ago, right here at this very church, I recall a church lunch in the fellowship hall. And there were a lot of young people in line, and they were noisy, and mostly kids that came from the training center from the city at the time. And I heard a woman in line say, who was behind them, say, I don't want to ever do a church potluck again. She's not here. But here's my interpretation of what she was saying now looking back, and I could be wrong. Here's my interpretation. You are feeling 
disgust or contempt or both. Now, we could solve this by just going to a large megachurch. Because then we could likely not have to take these teachings of Jesus so seriously and quite just simply bypass. We could hang with our affinity group. The group, you know, let's say there's, 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 there's bikers for Jesus. Let's just be a part of that affinity group. And easily fit into that circle of affection. Those that think like you and act like you and find your circle. On the other hand, we could go to a small, tiny congregation that tends to be a family church. And in that family church, there's already sort of a pre-selected group that is safe with one another. They have their own built-in circle of affection. Here we are, McKnight Crossing. Strange mix. <laughs> Everybody gets it. Larger than a family church, not a mega church. Sometimes it's hard to be here with so many outside our circle of affection. And yet in the middle of that, one of our key values is family. So I want to suggest that we keep learning from Jesus to both face our disgust and our contempt as, guess what? He has graciously faced it in us. And the challenge and the call, again, is to widen your circle of affection just as Jesus is calling us to, to respond to Christ's love because guess what? As we do this, we are getting ready. We are getting ready for the heavenly banquet where just like the Son of Man, we will freely eat and drink with all people that the Lord our God has called. Let's stand and sing.